Welcome to the Environmental Leadership Chronicles, a podcast brought to you by the California Association of Environmental Professionals. In this episode, we feature Lamika Castillo, co-founder of Castillo Consulting Partners. Lamika has over two decades of experience in leadership development, strategic planning, design thinking, grassroots community organizing, youth engagement, policy advocacy, and systems change. A commitment to social justice and racial equity permeates each aspect of her personal and professional life. Lamika supports organizations with developing, implementing, and assessing data-driven strategies, and she designs and facilitates leadership development trainings, conducts equity assessments, and moderates important conversations around race, bias, and equity. Her expertise lies in helping companies effectively embed equity, inclusion, diversity, access, and anti-racism into their leadership, policies, and procedures so they can best support and retain their people. Lamika is an Afro-Latina who was born and raised in South Central Los Angeles. She's a first-generation alumna who has committed her life and career to developing leaders, investing in communities, and promoting equity. She holds bachelor's degrees in ethnic studies and urban studies and planning from UCSD and dual master's degrees in public policy and urban planning. She's an adjunct faculty member at USC and also teaches Black, Latino, and Latin American relations courses in the Pan-African Studies Department at Cal State Los Angeles. Lamika graciously shares her expertise in this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy as much as we did. Hi, I'm Jessa. And I'm Laurel. And today's guest is Lamika. We're so happy to have you. This has been uh, much anticipated. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Um, and we'll we'll start as we always do. We know that you're not an environmental professional, but how are you connected to AEP? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I've been excited to have this conversation as well. And yes, I how am I connected to AEP? Well, I'm a diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, and anti-racism professional and got connected through to AEP. Um, a few months ago when uh, AP's executive leadership and board decided to expand the work that they're doing around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we're looking for a consultant who could help take you all on your journey to the next phase of of this work and in, in the DEI space. And so um, I was recommended by a couple of organizations that that I, I work with in the environmental space. And um it just, you know, things have boomed from there. We got we got started pretty quickly and here I am. Tell us more about that environmental space. Yeah, great question. So um there are several organizations that I have an opportunity to work with around diversity, equity, and inclusion that are in the environmental um, environment, do environmentalism work or conservation work. Some of those include uh, Grid Alternatives. They're based in San Diego, but a national organization that will, I don't know if they're actually based in San Diego, but I'm working with some folks who are based in San Diego and they're a national um, uh, organization that does uh, solar installation. So they're one of our current partners we work with. Um, we also have worked with Rails to Trails, um, who a lot of folks are familiar with, also a national organization, um, and we've done some DEI training with them. We've worked with um, SCA, the Student Conservation Association, and have worked, supported them in their diversity, equity, inclusion work. Um, we, I'm, My background is in urban planning uh, and public policy, and so I've had an opportunity to work with APA um, and also with um, PlaceWorks, who I know was um, one of the big partners with AEP and more focused on the planning side, but also does environmentalism. 
um, work and Surfrider Foundation is another one. So, I mean, the list just goes on and on. I, I hope, I mean, I know I'm missing some folks. So apologies if y'all are AEP members and I haven't m- mentioned you, I will try to remember to mention you throughout this um, this podcast interview. But the work that, that I do is, or my organization does, is to support organizations with developing leaders that are driving systemic change. That's our tagline. And um, we know that environmentalism and especially addressing issues of environmental racism is kind of the nexus between diversity, equity, inclusion, and environmentalism. And so we try to support organizations in their efforts to address um, environmental environmental issues with the inter- at the intersection of race, justice, economic justice, so on and so forth. That's great. And I was... I was like giggling almost. I was like, is that it? Because there's it's everybody, which is wonderful. And I think, you know, that last point about, you know, how important the environmental issues are to the issues that you as a professional deal with, with diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's all it's systemic. It's all interconnected. And I was getting ready to ask you, you know, you know, what attracted you to a uh, career and DEI? And then I realized that you are saying like diversity, equity, and inclusion, And so I wanted to ask, I guess, kind of a two part is like, you know, the intent to to not just shorten it to DEI and be more intentional about using the words as we talk about it. Yeah, Jessica, that's a great question. Um, A few thoughts there, I guess, answering the first part of the question. It's like a two part. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I do the same thing. I ask, you know, 15 questions in one, because when you're intrigued by whatever somebody has to say, you just everything comes out. And especially when you have somebody like me who talks a lot. So at least that's what my mom says. Um, <laughs> so how I got into this work is really just my through my personal background and experiences. I was born and raised in South LA, South Central specifically, which got renamed South LA and, and grew up in Inglewood and South Central and the South Bay here in Los Angeles. Um, and I, as a child, developed asthma at a young age. I think I was in elementary school. I wasn't born with asthma. If you hear the noise in the background, that's my seven month old. I am a, I'm a mom. I didn't get, I didn't like say more about myself outside of my, you know, professional, (laughs) my, my resume, but you'll hear him in the background. He just has to be close to mom, even as I'm in this podcast. Um, but yeah, so I get a special featured guest. That's okay. (laughs) Future guest, seven month old legacy. Um, and at some point, two year old justice might wake up too. Um, (laughs) so I um, developed asthma at a young age, as I mentioned, and what we were told as a, as, as a kid, you know, there were assumptions about why. Um, when we went to the doctor, it was all based on my individual experience, right? And, and decisions, personal decisions that were being made, like, oh, well, somebody in the household must be smoking. Nobody in our household smoked at all. Um, well, that it must be tied to genetics. Asthma is not tied to, there's like no evidence that asthma is connected to g- genetics, um, as far as I know, even today, like more research is showing that that's not the case at, at all. Um, but what we did learn, or what, especially what I learned as an adult, is that it is tied to environmental factors, right? That's not anything that any physician ever told us when I was growing up, that there could be something happening outside of my home, outside of our home, in the environment around us that was impacting our health, and that I, as a child, developed asthma as a result of those environmental injustices in my community, right? Um, and so I, I didn't know that and understand that as a child. I just knew that I had severe asthma that felt like it came out of nowhere where I was hospitalized, 
regularly, um, you know, having to take steroid inhalers six to 12 times a day, every four to six hours. As a, as a kid, I had what's called a nebulizer. If anybody's familiar, people are more familiar with them because unfortunately during COVID, folks have had to use nebulizers to stabilize themselves if they've had any kind of, um, you know, like if, if they've had COVID in extreme um, cases. And and so I was on nebulizers. I was getting, I had to go to the hospital, the ER on a regular basis, and I had steroid shots to stabilize my, my breathing. Um, come to find out, I wasn't the only person in my community or only child in my community who was experiencing this. Many of my friends had asthma. The nurse's office when I was a kid was filled with kids who had to come in because you couldn't keep your inhaler with you on your person. You had to go into the nurse's office to take your medicine. And it was just like, you know, clockwork where kids were going in and I was one of those kids. So why are all of these children in this particular community experiencing severe asthma? And many of us were not born with it. But again, I didn't understand that until I was an adult an adult, meaning I went to college, right? So as much of an adult as you can be at 18 years old. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> right? And I went to UC San Diego. I moved away from LA, first person in my family, first generation college student, went to UC San Diego and discovered urban planning, discovered ethnic studies, discovered you know public health courses and environmental justice and environmental courses as a student and started to connect the dots. And I realized, huh, this, there's something, this is, I've been told my whole life that it was family decisions. It didn't make sense because nobody, you know, was doing the things that we were told. And it turns out that the reason, right, why all of these kids in my community were suffering from asthma is really because of environmental injustices and equities where living in South Central LA, you got all these freeways, you have all of these um, um, oil rigs, right? And so the air quality is really poor and it's been, and you have old homes that have all kinds of chemicals and things in there that we don't know about, that the the soil is not good, right? Like there are all of these different types of issues that um, my community, I think, somewhat knows that those at the time knew that they were there, but didn't necessarily connect them as systemic. So that's how I got involved in this work, because when I went to school, to college and started learning about these issues and then saw how they paralleled my experience in my life, came very clear to me that something needed to change, right? And that's why I decided that I wanted to pursue a career in urban planning and ethnic studies. Like, under, I was just so mesmerized by, yeah. oh my gosh, there's like a bigger story about my life that I, I had no idea. I hear you. I hear you. And b- before you answer Jess's second question, wanted to share that I had a similar experience, not that I had asthma, but going to university and you have this like epiphany and this realization of the interconnectedness of all the things that you witnessed as a child. And then you start to learn environmental studies, urban planning, and you're like, oh, these are like systemic things that are interconnected. And if I can have a career or a profession in this, wow, what change I could make. Um, I, I had that realization. And then one of my first jobs was working at the Port of LA and the Port of Long Beach and, and uh, staying in San Pedro and just being in that community and witnessing and experiencing the air quality issues that come from, as you said, the the infrastructure, the roads, um, as well as, you know, boats and cargo. And they're doing incredible things to clean this up. But LA, the way it's situated as an an air base and keeps it, holds holds all those things in and the sun bakes it, you know, for lack of a better word. And then that's what you're breathing in is like baked, not baked bad stuff. Well, I feel like as a kid, like I grew up in rural Missouri, so I had a very, very different experience. But, you know, seeing the news and I'm thinking probably like, you know, the 90s, it's like L.A. was smog. 
like that's like what I thought about LA. I can like picture it in like movies and stuff. And like, you know, it's just this big city covered in this cloud of smog. It's true. I mean, and we were living that and some folks were having or being impacted by it more than others. Right. And Laurel talked about San, uh, San Pedro and Long Beach, you know, at, at one point, I don't know what the numbers are now, but at least 15, 20 years ago, when I was looking into this and um, especially with the focus on the ports, not as an environmental professional, but as a community organizer who was organizing communities to say, our children and our families deserve better than this terrible air quality. And we, yes, we want to support goods and services being transported across the country, right? We have the largest port, um, like most of the most of the goods and goods that come into the country come through Long Beach and San Pedro, and they get shipped across the 710 freeway and so on and so forth. But when our children's lung capacity is at 70% of what it should be, and we compare that to the rest of the, you know, LA County and other parts of the state, that's not okay. So interestingly enough, right, again, not an environmental professional, but going in and organizing a community like, hey, these are my people. And I was one of those children. And it took me going to San Diego to learn like, okay, that's not, that's, this is not normal and it shouldn't be normalized at all. It's not okay that this is happening. You didn't deserve that as a child. No other children deserve that. Nobody does. So how do we fix it? Um, that's that's really kind of what got me into the environmental work. And in addition to like all the other economic justice and, you know, um, justice issues that I, that I focus on in my, in my work and in my career. But to the question around diversity, equity, and inclusion, we do work that's diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, and anti-racism. And I always name it because people do know DEI. They've heard of DEI and um, they lump them all together. Not everybody focuses on justice and, and, and anti-racism. I know in a lot of environmentalism organizations, there's a focus on justice because folks use JEDI. That's like the term that gets used uh, around in a lot of different environmental conservation spaces. Um, but the anti-racism piece is really critical for our work, because what we know is that these systemic issues um, that we've been talking about so far impact everybody, but they definitely have a, a, a concerted impact or like the impact is even greater in low-income communities and communities of color, because a lot of low-income communities happen to be communities of color, not by chance, but by um, systemic, like because of systems that were put in place to create those communities. And so we want to make sure that in our work, we are looking at Yes, let's help organizations increase diversity, but just because you have a beautiful rainbow of people and folks from the LGBTQ community and folks who are with you know living with a disability and mothers and parents and all, if, just because you have all that does not mean that there's equity in the organization. And just because if you know if you work toward equity doesn't mean everybody's feeling included. And just because you have inclusion inclusion doesn't mean that you're actually addressing um, issues of injustice. And when you have all those things together, it does not mean that you're actually addressing uh, racism. And so we have to look at them individually as well as collectively. And so we say, say them out loud to remind people that they are all uniquely important and collectively, they have you have to work on them individually and have them all working at the same time simultaneously in order to actually get to the systemic change that we want. Thank you for walking us through that. It is important to name and know what we're talking about. And it was reminding me of these feelings and experiences I had as an environmental professional. And I was learning about abundance and diversity of organisms as a key indicator or metric of a healthy ecosystem where all the animals are organisms. There's a lot of them and they're diverse and they're all doing their thing really well like the mushrooms, the mycelial network, all community, you know, 
degrading things, creating food, feeding the trees, like it's all functioning together. And that was my, I felt in my heart, isn't that how humans should be living? Um, And I know it sound at the time, you know, to everyone I was talking to, it was super hippy dippy harmony, like, let's go, you know, hug some trees kind of thing. But it makes economic (laughs) social justice sense. It makes sense for us as human beings to behave in a healthy ecosystem way. So I can see the tie, not just from like an experience being sick in your habitat um, and learning about urban planning and, and how to do that. But what, what is the vision in your opinion? So that was my environmental professional opinion. In your opinion, in your professional opinion, what is the vision for a healthy society? Um, Laurel, that, that it was that was a tree hugger hippy dippy, but I like it. I like <laughs> I'm a tree, I'm vegan, right? So I'm definitely oh, yeah. like fully vegan, tree hugger, hippy dippy. Um commitment. Mom, as they say, I learned all these terms since I became a mom a couple years ago. Um, but I like that example. And what I want to just build on that and say. And when, when one of those, you know, when you have this biodiversity, but one animal or one part of that biodiversity is excluded or eliminated, like we were talking about is extinction and, you know, things like that before we started this, this conversation on the podcast, when, when you remove one of those, it throws everything off kilter, right? If you, if we don't know, like we don't fully understand the ramifications of animals that have been removed from this earth because of the environmental degradation that we have caused as humans in on, on this earth, right? Um, for the ones that have been extinct like for a long time. And we were talking about monarch butterflies and how they've been put on the um on the list of animals that could potentially or I guess they're not really an animal, but you know what I mean. Y'all, y'all know all the folks who are the sciencey people know what I'm talking about, right? Um <laughs> and that's a concern. And we don't know. I mean, bees, right? Like I'm so careful with bees. We we go to a local community garden with our kids, and um, my son is like swatting at the bees. I'm like, don't, don't just don't hurt the bees. And that's like a big thing that kids have been learning. Why? Because we know that if we remove them from our from our world, that there will be you know, far-reaching um impacts. And I will say that I think the same thing is true in the work that we do um, in our lives as human beings, that if you, you're missing out on so much that that a whole group of people have to offer if they're not included in the workplace, right? I mean, just imagine I'm a woman, um, I, I see here we have she, her uh, gender pronouns on the screen, indicating that the, the, the three of us on, on this call, I believe identify as women. Think about the the how much was missing from workforces for all of these years when women were excluded from the workforce, right? You didn't have this amazing thinking. We we can literally see there's data that shows the changes that have occurred when women began to have, well, not just began, when women, like when we pushed our ways into having, taking opportunities and leadership and saying, we have, a, we should have a stake at the table and we're going to take it and we can lead and it's going to be great. And then you look at the, like, like look at organizations that are led by women and how different people feel in those organizations, right? And and how well these women are leading. But imagine all of that was missing before women were given a seat at the table and an opportunity to lead, right? And we have laws that were passed in California just literally in the past five years, less than five years, that said, we still haven't done enough to make sure that women are fully included. You got to have women on your boards, right? So we have a, we literally have a law that says you have to have women on your boards because 
people were not including women on their boards. And then you see the shift in how these organizations are operating. So when you're missing, you know, gender diversity, racial and ethnic diversity, diversity of folks from with different lived experiences, you know, people from uh, different economic backgrounds and just all the different types of, of diversity, you are missing out. Like there's so much potential being left on the table and you're not optimizing how your company can operate. You're not optimizing the the brilliance. You know I mean? Like you don't have the brilliance of ideas that could be flowing that would actually improve the, the world around us. I agree. I mean, the, you're missing the social value, which has value in the business. And when I was just talking about this with a very close family member about how when she was a stay-at-home mom, she had no value in the economic system. Even though it's a full-time job, it's like non-paid slave labor, basically not slave labor. Of course, that was a very strong word, but it's non-paid labor um, to take care of the future of our civilization. And when we enter the workforce, we don't have the support that we need to um, share the highest and best value of our social equity with the organization when we don't have the resources at our disposal. But indeed, our organizations, our businesses, our agencies thrive when that type of organism is added into the ecosystem, uh, for sure. And so how, how did you get into this business yourself because you are you have an incredible background obviously AEP wanted to engage you yesterday <laughs> like like immediately um we talked about your academic background how did you get um into this consulting world doing doing the beautiful work you do thanks yeah um so i mentioned that in my education i think i mentioned that I, when I went to school, I learned about urban planning, environmental issues, health, and all the intersections. And I also learned about ethnic studies. Um, and ethnic studies, I felt like was home for me because it was a place where I felt seen and heard by everybody who was in that space. I'm going to be honest and say that going to UC San Diego was, was a challenge. When I was a student there, Black students were 1% of the, of the population. Actually, we were less than 1%. We used to have shirts that said represent and then the less than sign, 1% because out of the 20,000 undergrads, we literally knew that there were 156 black students across the undergraduate population, right? This is in the state of California, in San Diego, California. My family's from Central America, from, from um, Panama, and the Latino student population was 2% in San Diego when I was a student there. I mean, it was just incredibly unbelievable. And so being a minority of minorities at UC San Diego, um, and coming from the community I grew up in, right, a, a community where it was mostly students of color, Black, Latino, Asian Pacific Islander, we had Samoan and Tongan, like we just had this very Filipino, like a very diverse array of students, with the exception of white students. We had like, a, it was like the complete opposite experience. We had a handful of white students in my schools growing up, and then we had pretty much no, very few people of color when I went to college. And that is when I started to realize these, how, like how my experience growing up was so different than some of my classmates who didn't, you know, have, for example, free lunch. I received free lunch my whole life. Pretty much none of my classmates received, they didn't receive free lunch. They, that, that was something that was looked down on, right? Because of, you know, whatever their upbringings were. And so it was an interesting experience and dynamic for me. And I, and I had a desire as a person who was feeling very excluded to learn how to create inclusive places, uh, make every place inclusive for every person so that they didn't 
feel like I don't belong here. And I, and I learned that pretty much like right out the gate when I got to UC San Diego. Um, and I did love my time there. I learned so much. I did, I was able to, you know, make a lot of friends and build a, a, a strong community around me, but it was in that experience that I realized I want to be able to do something. And at the time I didn't know what diversity, equity, and inclusion or DI consulting was. I don't actually, think, I mean, it was a profession, but it was like very minimally. So there are people who were, were doing work in this space, but it wasn't to the extent that it is now. So I didn't even know that this was a career path that I could pursue. Um, but I knew that I wanted to do something like that, right? How do I make sure that um, students in classrooms who may be one of few, first of all, should not be one of few, right? We should have this beautiful, especially in California, come on, right? Like we're one of the most diverse, most populous states in the country. Why is it that we still have classes and schools and workplaces that don't reflect that diversity? Um, and so that's what I wanted to be able to do is to help reflect that reflect that diversity. And then also to address these inequities. I mean, as a student, I worked multiple jobs. Um, I I worked at In-N-Out Burger. I'm vegan, by the way. I think I said that already. But my first, I was a vegan when I was growing up. And so my first job in high school was at In-N-Out Burger. And I worked at the one in Pacific Beach for anybody who's in San Diego. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, I frequented. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I I frequented too. And luckily, I got free meals um, <laughs> as an employee. But I worked at In-N-Out Burger. I drove buses on campus at UC San Diego. I also drove buses around the campus through the city bus because that was the highest paying job that I could find as an undergraduate student, right? I, I I did whatever I could to try to supplement my um, my financial aid because I didn't have uh, support, financial support for my family. People couldn't afford it. I was a first-generation college student, the first person to ever move away. And I just didn't want that experience for other folks. And so that's how I decided that I really wanted to um, address these inequities, both at an individual level with people, and then how do we address them systemically? And that's how I got into this work. I'm, I'm just also saying to all the business world, isn't that the kind of worker that you want? The the one who knows her worth ethic, the one that's got a good work ethic, the one that goes out there and chases and hustles and gets it done. Like, isn't that, the, aren't those the people that we should be, be hiring? And as I'm thinking about this and feeling this, that's how AEP feels is that there's this untapped resource of people who would thrive as environmental professionals and contribute significant value to our industry if we were able to bring them into the profession. And we're just not. Uh, like our organization, I'm, I'm sure you could touch on this probably um, doing our survey and analyzing our industry. The, the AEP board analyzed the industry and realized that we do not represent the populace of California. And there's something like 12,000 uh, professionals, environmental professionals in the workforce that we don't capture. There are middle school and high school students who do not understand the interconnectedness of the environmental world and the lives they live, like, like you didn't realize until you went to UCSD. How do we, ex how do we make them more aware earlier? And that was the reason behind engaging you is because we just felt this well, during the pandemic, we wanted to offer free student memberships for our organization because we want to bring those students into our organization and usher them into the profession and keep them growing with us and changing laws, policy, work that we do, adding value to our organization. So that was the first step that we took. And then um, we did a deep dive analysis into the makeup of our industry and realized, holy moly, massive group of people that we are not including. And 
oh, are we not including them? Are we? Do we have barriers? Like we're just not aware. Um, and so hiring you was to be like, what are we not? What do we not know? Uh, and and how do the how do our members feel about that? Um, and what can we do? What are very specific right actions that we can take as an organization to get people that we need involved in our organization? And that's why we brought you on board. So could you please explain a little bit about the scope of the effort that you're working on and when the world could expect the results of our analysis? Ooh, well. I I will do my best. <laughs> um, but yeah, I Laura, every every time you ask a question, I start all my like all the do 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 all these things start going off in my head. I was, oh, you share what you want to share with me. Right. This is your time. <laughs> um, a couple of thoughts that came to mind. I'm gonna answer your question. One is we're actually doing some work with AQMD right now, the South Coast Air uh, Air Quality Management District, um, and specifically around AB 617. So if folks are familiar with AB 617, state state legislation, of course, that is looking at air quality and how do we uh, reduce emissions in certain communities. And AQMD here in Southern California has a unique model that they are, I don't want to say they're piloting it, but it is the only place where they're doing this right now which is that they have a co-lead relationship with organizations in South LA and the AQMD, so small nonprofit organizations that are doing environmental justice work specifically with AQMD, they're partnered together to uh, lead the South LA community through creating their um, community emissions reduction um, plan, right? So their SERP. And it's been incredible and fascinating and I feel like so empowering to see. Of course, there are challenges, right? But it's to your point, Laurel, what are we missing, right? AQMD realized we need to be partnering more with community organizations and have like uh, to to shift the balance of power, if you will, and try to have like a co-leadership model that is actually having community members who've been doing this work from their vantage point in the community as advocates to actually help shape the direction of this emissions reductions plan. And I think it's been great and there are lots of learnings and it just points to um, a potential model that I think other organizations can follow in this space. More on that to come to because we're in the process the implement. I just had a meeting, I think two days ago, and we're about to start implementation of that SERP. It was approved by, yeah, it was approved um, last month and CARB, it's going to CARB on August 25th for their approval. And then Boom, you know, in September, we're hoping that we're going to be ready to go and implement uh, into the implementation phases of the work. But I just well, want to see that as an example of like a potential model that other organizations may look to. And I want to pop in and give a shout out to AEP because we we do that in, a, in a, that model in an interesting way where we do a, a public partnership. AEP is highly involved in the uh, governor's office of planning and research when it comes to CEQA and policy. And we're, we're holding hands with those folks at the agency uh, training legislators as they come in on CEQA and environmental law that they're going to propose like ABs and SBs that come out. How does that affect how environmental laws are implemented and how CEQA analyzes impacts and stuff? So we we fully support that model and think it would be great for all agencies to do what AQMD is doing because then you're bringing in this knowledge and, and this resource that uh, you don't you don't have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Along those lines, 
what you mentioned earlier about what the executive board decided for AP is we don't know what we don't know. Who can we bring in that's going to help us figure out what we don't know so then we can change things and, and increase not just diversity, but really focus on equity and inclusion. And I think uh, hopefully justice and anti-racism also will be a part of the conversation. Um, but yes, we did uh, uh, sorry launch a survey a couple months ago. And um, our Castile Consulting Partners did work in partnership with the executive board. Um, and specifically, there's a, a DEI, a Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Committee um, on the executive board uh, that is doing some incredible work. They had already been doing some thinking around this, but like you said, launched in um, 2020 after George Floyd's murder and said, what can we do in our space, right, within our locus of control um, to address these, these uh, diversity, equity, inclusion challenges in our profession? And they've been putting their heads together. They're meeting regularly to have conversations about ideas um, that they're gaining, getting from members as well as what they, you know, what they're coming up with themselves. I don't think that I'm, I'm, I'm not in the space yet to be able to share what those, what those things are because I have no idea what's going to come, come of this just yet. Um, but the data collection process has gone really well. Thank you to everybody who um, has submitted a survey response. We started analyzing that data, and um, we're finding some interesting trends that are are coming up. Because not only were we collecting demographic information, because AEP has not done that um, historically, and that was one of the first recommendations we had. It's so critical, not just AEP, but every organization we work with. I think people shy away from wanting to collect demographic information because we think, oh, you know, um, we should be colorblind and we shouldn't have this information. But there's a reason why we need that information. We need that information to be able to see whether or not there are inequities or, or just to even know, are we like, does our population uh, mirror the state's population or are we reflective of the communities we serve, right? Because some of our organizations work in communities that don't reflect the, the diversity of the state, but they may be a predominantly Black or Latino or Asian Pacific Islander community, a predominantly LGBTQ community. So there's a concentration of people and our organizations should really I think, reflect those populations and make sure that we're intention actively and intentionally seeking to hire folks from those communities because we're working to serve those communities. So who better to help you come up with innovative ideas about how to best serve a community than the people from that community, right? And I think that that's what AEP is, um, is committed to figuring out how, what to do and how to do that through this process. Exactly. We were sitting in a board meeting and we were looking around the table and we're like, are we reflective of our industry? I don't think so. I get the feeling that we're probably not. And yet we're on this board making decisions for things that affect, well, I mean, I think everyone in California and beyond because environmental matters are your habitat. Um, but yeah, we all sat at the table and we looked around and we're like, we have to make a change. Well, I have a 500 questions. I'll try to keep it to maybe five, but you know, as you're talking about this, uh, you know, same thing, my brain is like going like crazy. And I'm thinking like with my employer hat on and eh, the man hat, <laughs> um, but you know, there's a few things here. And one is that, you know, when we talk about diversity and the intent to, to look for employees, like I think of this and like collecting, sorry, I'm like going all over the place, but collecting demographic information, there's so many like HR laws and people are so afraid to like touch it. And so it's like, how as an employer do you recruit for diversity without, you know what I mean? Without, I mean, I've seen some job ads maybe, and I might answer my own question where it's like, you know, we're inclusive 
but you know, they're just words, you know, you really have to show that you're inclusive and that there is like, you know, the equity and justice, anti-racism, all these other like systemic factors to have that type of environment. And so how, cause an, how as an employer, can you actively create a diverse workforce? Jessica, that, that's a great question. And it's so multifaceted that I hope I can answer it in, in the amount of time that Sorry. we have. No, it's okay. Because it's a question we get all the time, right? How can you do that? There are HR laws, so on and so forth. And it's true, there are HR laws, but it doesn't pro- prohibit you from um, what we like to say, right? Uh, making sure that you're fishing in the right pools and ponds for the diverse array of, of candidates to even be considered for a position, right? So that's that's not, that's not even really the starting point. I'll, I'll, I'll say this for AP, we are talking about students. How are we recruiting students? When I was an undergraduate student, I received a free uh, membership to APA. It was like an automatic. I'm an I, I'm a major in urban planning program, um, so I get APA. And then I went to USC, fight on Trojans, and I <laughs> had to give my shout out to USC. And I was in urban planning. You know, I, I, I dual I had dual degrees. I was in a dual degree program for public policy and urban planning. And I received a free APA membership as well as at, at that point. That's why I got introduced to um, to APA at the time, right? If I had gotten introduced to AEP, I might may have been an AEP like lifelonger member of AEP as well. I don't know, right? Um, but I say that to say this. A lot of students, starting younger, uh, Laurel mentioned middle and high school students, they care about environmental issues. My my niece, who designed my bookcase as a beautiful rainbow, for those who are watching on YouTube um, or wherever you, you get the, the podcast on video, she was five years old and said that she wants to design this, this bookcase. She is eight years old. She is the most recycling recyclist I've ever met in my life, Right. She cares so much about the environment. Whenever we walk, like going on a walk, there's trash somewhere. She's picking it up. She is young. She She's not making all the connections to the systemic issues, but she is committed to being an environmentalist, right? She's learned it at an early age. However, if she, be, because we have her in the schools that we have her in, right? That's making a difference. When I was a kid, those are like, nobody helped me connect those dots. So I didn't know what the opportunities were. I didn't know what the possibilities were. So if we're starting with STEM education and and AEP has, I mean, y'all are the boots on the ground, right? You are the environmental environmental professionals. If we, if we can make those connections, like we have these really smart people who understand environmentalism. We have these, these really brilliant kids who are so committed to making sure that the earth is healthy and that they're cleaning up and they want to do their beach cleanup days, right? How many beach cleanup days did we all do in high school? How many of us got into, I mean, AEP or like got into environmental professional because of stuff like that, right? So I think that that's, that that's one of the things that helps with recruitment. The other piece is, and I was talking to um, some of the executive uh, board members about this is when we talk about equity, education is one piece of equity. There's also the incarceration system, right? All these systems are interconnected. Um, some of us have heard about how it, currently incarcerated people, many of them, you know, when we have these massive forest fires, like what we're seeing right now in our state in Yosemite, that we don't have enough firefighters to do that work, right? So the state of California has tapped into incarcerated, into, uh, to, to the prison system and having incarcerated individuals go and learn how to put out forest fires, which we all know, right? Or maybe we don't all know, but you, we know that it takes skill it takes an understanding of environment, like of the environment, understanding the safety, the safety measures that are required, 
why what's happening with the trees when they're you know um c- catching on fire all these kind of things that i don't understand but there are fire things that are related to environmentalism and i know that those are folks who when they get out of prison guess what they're not allowed to become firefighters there are advocates who are pushing and pushing i'm one of those right pushing and pushing to say why is it that we can have them making a dollar a day fighting fires to protect our environment and our state and protect the homes of folks who's, you know, who are being evacuated. And then when they come out of prison, they're not allowed to get a job as a firefighter. How can we tap into that? That It's not even untapped because it was tapped. This is a, a very tapped population of people. And then when they become, when, they, when they're free again, they're not, we're not utilizing those skills. We're just like leaving all of that potential on the table. And it's an injustice, right? It's a total injustice. Imagine how many of those individuals would be eligible to work in the environmental professions. Those are the types of innovative ways that we need to be thinking about recruiting and removing barriers, right? And so when we say, how do we ask those types of questions on on an application, doing things like that, the words are just words until you're serious about them, right? And you can say, we welcome individuals who were formerly incarcerated if they're interested in positions here, because we know that these are great jobs that don't necessarily require a, you know, a degree if you don't have it. And we want to address this inequity, the systemic inequity. We welcome folks who don't have a college degree for these positions. We are looking to increase diversity, not for diversity's sake, but because we know that there's value that you bring from your background to this space because your communities are impacted too, to Laurel's point, right? Everybody's impacted by environmental issues. So I know that was a long-winded response. But so, so good. It's so good. And I wanted to touch on that is because recruiting means you need to target the pool um, or new pool of people. And we d- we don't know this yet. And we don't know this yet. But are, is AEP as an organization intimidating to those who don't have four-year university degrees? Is it intimidating to those who don't have community college degrees? Is it intimidating to high schoolers and middle schoolers? Because it's, you know, quote unquote professional, like, is it, are we just by our natural um, business as usual, precluding people from joining us simply because they don't have degrees? Um, But there's so much work in this industry where you don't need accelerated or higher levels of education to be a significant contributor to the impact analyses that we do. Um, to the remediation and restoration work that we do, the construction. I mean, envir- this organization isn't just uh, conserving lands and restoring lands, but we construct things and we construct buildings and infrastructure and, and renewable energy power plants and st- energy storage systems and all this infrastructure that we need these very skilled people who live in the community to work in that community. We like It is... It's been annoying and heartbreaking for me to see me recruiting, like when I work on a a big industrial project, recruiting people from outside the community that I'm building this project in, because the community that I'm building this project in isn't connected to this industry. And I'm like, why? They should have these jobs. This This could be intergenerational wealth for them. It's true, Laurel, and it's happening in so many spaces. And I will say that I think this is, again, the conversation we're having now or the, is the type of conversation that needs to be happening with every HR team and every organization, environmental organization and otherwise, 
What are we doing to ensure that we are correcting for and addressing inequities that have been built into these systems for a long time because they are interconnected. The very communities that, I mean, again, everybody's impacted by environmental, um, you know, environmental issues and, and degradation. However, some communities are impacted more than others. And when we are working in communities where we're seeing that, that heightened level of, uh, or disproportionate impact from environmental issues, like a community like mine, where I started this, you know, my, my, my journey in this work, um, where children are developing asthma at much higher rates because of these policies that allow for it because of inequities, then we really need to be doing some inreach in those communities and identifying ways to partner with the community, not in a, um, a tokenizing way, right? Just to be able to say, look, we have these few people from the community who are now part of the conversation, but we are resourcing them. We are giving them the resources. We are creating job opportunities because as you mentioned, there's so many job opportunities in this space that require skills and education, but just not to the same degree as some other, you know, some other roles in, in the environmental space. And perhaps somebody, you know, I, I, I know but young people, but like in their in their 30s who were incarcerated for much of their, you know, adolescence and then went off to, to school later, like in their 30s, got a bachelor's degree after they were introduced to a job in the environmental profession, right? Like they got introduced to it and one of the, you know, doing some remediation and they're like, wow, this is fascinating. I want to move up the ladder. And so it actually, sure, years later, and they are what, what we call a non-traditional student. I'm a professor as well, right? So what we call non-traditional student path um, pathways, they're taking non-traditional student pathways, but it was because they were given an opportunity to do some work in their community and whatever that organization is decided, you know what, doesn't matter that they have a criminal background. That doesn't matter because that is a part of their story. It's not fully and wholly who they are and they have so much to offer here and this is their community and they want to be involved. And then now that person is moving up the ladder and moving up the ranks and in increasing their educational awareness and not just their awareness, but actually getting degrees to be, you know, in higher levels of like of this change. And I just want to say this, a lot of the organizations we work with um, in the environmental space are struggling with and wrestling with, we're environmentalists, we're conservationists. Can we actually focus on environmental justice, right? Can we say that we do environmental justice? And that is that it's hard for folks to, to, to be able to move in that direction. If you don't start to have real conversations around environmental justice and really think about environmental justice as a part of who you are as an organization, you're going to be a dinosaur soon. And I say that because the youth care about environmental justice. I mean, look at what's happening in the world around us, right? Who is leading um, environmental um, who's leading the conversation right now? The activists are 15, they're literally 13 year old kids, right? Who are on not national stages, international stages. And they are talking about ec uh, in environmental justice. They're tying it to racial justice. They're tying it to economic justice. So those of us who are a little bit older than that, I always tell people, my students, I'm still 21. I've been with my husband for 21 years. So you do the math, but right. We, <laughs> Those of us who are 20, 21 and above, we need to get with the times because the young folks are really, really committed to addressing inequities and they don't, you know, they don't want to move, move forward with just like the traditional, we're just, we're just the environmental organization. No, environmentalism in and of itself, if you're focused on it, is is it is an act of justice. You are looking to to right the wrongs of of environmental inequities in our society. So you got to just name it and move forward with it and figure out how to incorporate it into your work on a regular basis. I mean, I want those people to have a job doing this. Um, and and just, I know you have a question. I'll pause. Oh yeah, no, I have a lot. Uh, well, I'll try to, I know we're getting towards the end of our time here though. 
So one question I have though, is we're talking about this is what can employers do? Well, I say employers, like leaders, people in the decision-making position, like what can they do literally tomorrow to start to focus on, you know, all of, I mean, you've got to start somewhere. Right. And so like, we're talking about this systemic um, interconnectedness of like diversity, equity, inclusion, um, justice, and anti-racism. And so what, you know, if someone's listening to this podcast and they're in a a decision, I kind of a two-parter, a decision-making position, what, what can they do? Like, what can they take back and say, okay, today we're going to do this. And the other side of that is if you're an employee of an organization where you're maybe working with some of these dinosaurs, like how can you, what's something that some tools that they can use to bring that conversation to the table? Yeah, excellent questions. Um, My first thought is most folks in leadership decide we got to do a training. That's what we're going to do. That's the first thing. And there's nothing wrong with training. Training is great. Training is not, I would say training is usually not the first place to start. So I just want to say, don't start with training. (laughs) And the reason for that is because you don't know what you're training for, right? Training could be a really great tool. It is a great tool, right? I'm, again, I'm an educator. So training to me is just an extension of your education beyond your degree or high school or wherever you got your, your, your formal education. I would say that leaders need to start with looking at their internal policies, practices, and procedures, right? Let's look at our employee handbook. Let's look at how we are, how, where are we recruiting candidates? Well, we have a new position that's open, opening up Usually we're trying to fill it quickly, right? Because nobody wants to have a vacancy for so long that everybody else is pulling pulling the weight and you know you want to get it filled quickly. But you got to slow down a little bit in order to be able to actually infuse equity, diversity, inclusion, and all of that into your work. So if I'm looking at my recruitment policies and we don't have any, change that right away, right? Recruitment policy says we need to make sure that before we even move to an interview, we need to have a diverse candidate pool. That does not, that literally does not preclude anybody from the process. It just means that we're taking the time to add in more folks and not just to say we had, you know, yay, we had some diversity in our candidate pool, but to say we really went and sought out folks who would add value to the organization. And we made sure that before we um, moved into this interview process or our selection process, that we were intentional and thoughtful about creating the space for people who would not otherwise have had an opportunity to really put their hat in the ring for this position. I think that that people undervalue that. It is so critical that you're starting it with something like that. Um, I have a, I have a real world example. The nature conservancy released a requisition for um, a particular role in the organization and in their list, you know, where it's like degrees and things and experience. It said, if you do not have all these things, but you add other value, we believe in you, please apply and we will review your application and bring you in so that people don't look at it and go, well, nope, 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 I'm not doing it. They look at it and go, oh, maybe I could add this. That's exactly it, right? I mean, uh, words uh, words on paper don't mean much until you have the right words on paper that encourage people and they can see themselves as potentially being in your organization, right? So I think that that's critical. If you're not in the process of hiring right now, which I know, unfortunately, we're, you know, we're in, a, in, in going into a recession. So a lot of organizations are at a standstill, not hiring right now. That doesn't mean that you can't look at your internal candidate pool and in your policies, look at how are we, like, how are we making decisions about promotions, right? This is a total inequity issue that we see in a lot of organizations that, um, 
if it's addressed, could lead to more diversity and leadership, right? So one example of this is we've worked with, or in, in our, we do what we call internal audits. So we audit uh, policies of organizations. And one of the things that we might look at could be performance reviews, right? We want to see what, um, give us a, a sample of your performance reviews with um, just the demographic information, if you have it. And we look at the language. And I can't tell you how many times they're like, you know, this the folks just weren't ready for promotion. And then we look at a couple years of uh, performance management um, reviews and we find, oh no, there was there were some biases baked into this, like full-fledged, right? Look at the language between this, uh, how these men are being evaluated versus how these women are being evaluated. Uh, for women, you know, people people feel intimidated by her, um, that there's aggressive, uh, she's she's been aggressive versus men. He's very assertive and he's demonstrating signs of leadership, totally unconscious, totally not trying to exclude women from these spaces, but it's happening, right? And we will look at, okay, well, we want to see how, you know, how, like who's been promoted over the past three years. And then we see trends, very clear trends because nobody's looking at that data right? We may see, oh, on average, it took these, like these men um, were in this position for six months before they got promoted. But when we're looking at the women or the BIPOC folks, right, the people of color, they took a year and a half. So there's a whole big gap there that people don't notice because nobody's looking at the data. They're just seeing, oh, this individual is ready for the position versus, hmm, this is interesting. Why are we seeing that these particular groups are not advancing at, at the same rate? Is it because they're not qualified or is it because maybe some bias, or maybe it's a combination of both, but then how do we shore up their skills, get them qualified? So those are some of the things that really take the leadership, I'm sorry, the initiative of a leader to be able to say, have we gone through this with a fine-tooth comb, right? When we're looking at our team and we're looking at the, the, the leadership, like to Laurel's point, right? We look around the room at the executive table and we're like, do we really reflect the populations we serve? And if we don't, why don't we? Then start looking at those types of things internally. And I think that Nobody else can do that except HR and leadership within the organization. Other people are doing it, but they don't have the data, right? They're they're just seeing, they're, it's all anecdotal until you actually, uh, this is what data-driven decision-making looks like, right? So I would recommend those types of things um, as some first steps that leaders can take that may feel like a little bit of a lift, but um, it doesn't, to ask your HR for the data around those things, they could pull that information and say, hey, here's where we are. And then you can start making some changes there. And then you can go to training, right? Then you go to training to say, ah, yes, there is a gap here. Now let's have our staff train to better understand where these biases are coming from and then address those. That's great. I'm literally taking notes. And now I'm feeling bad because I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm getting like um, your, you know, free consulting advice. Right now. <laughs> like Selfishly asking this. Okay. So, you know, we'll have one more question before we like get into our, our rapid our wrap up rapid five. Sorry, we're going a little over our uh, schedule time, but you know, you're dealing with really intense, heavy issues that are very, you know, on the surface, difficult to change. And, you know, you're, uh, you know, you have a, an infant and a toddler and you have your own business and you're a professor and you're a wife and you're a human. So how do you take care of yourself? What are some things you do to help you show up and, and be there for all these things you have going on in the world and like, take care of yourself while you're doing it? That's a good question and somewhat a tough question, but I think I can answer it. Um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because there's so much going on and, I, and I'm and i transitioning back into work after being on leave um, for my, my recent birth. Um, a few things, we have a local community garden that we love, love, love to, to take our kids to. And it gives me an opportunity to just kind of be 
in nature, if you will, because we can just walk to it. And um, I love picking strawberries and tomatoes. My, my two-year-old loves strawberries. He just like goes and eats them right off the vine, right? Um, and he loves to, we take our compost. So we, we've been teaching him composting. He knew composting before he knew the word trash. He knows compost, right? So those are some of the things I, that I like to do for self-care. It's like, how do I make sure that um, I'm instilling in the next generation, like uh, they they, keep, they don't even know what this is, what is trash? I don't know, but you know, recycle and compost, right? You know that. Um, so so we we compost and he gets to like go, <laughs> go and dig up the dirt and like put it in there. Um, like put it into the the plants and then see the fruits of his labor. And so that has given me so much joy. Um, I, I've also been, I'm just thinking of like, I have like a lot of things in my head. It's mostly like being out in nature, honestly. And then I'm such an activist. Like I like to be out in the streets and, and, and like organizing and, and advocating and bringing people in, which has been tough to do in this, you know, with the pandemic and everything being virtual. So I've been going to community meetings. This is a nerd in me, but it actually does give me some joy going to virtual community meetings and listening in and learning what's happening in the community so that I can still be actively involved, even if I can't show up in person. So if anybody's like me and like, I'm still pretty quarantined as much as you possibly can because of this pandemic, I would, and you want to be more involved. I would say if you can, even listening in the background with the kids hearing and my son, my two-year-old asks all kinds of questions. What are they talking about? Why, why are they talking about, you know, what is juvenile justice? Like those types of things are what's coming up in our household at age two. So, um, that brings, that brings, <laughs> to it. I like to believe that, you know, we're raising the, the, the next generation of leaders and we got to start them young, right. Got to start them young. So those are some of the things that I'm doing for, for self-care, uh, these days, which probably don't sound so much like self-care, but I do feel like as a mom, self-care looks a little bit different in a pandemic than it would have if I wasn't in a pandemic, like, you know, yeah. I would be traveling. Well, yeah, no, I think that's wonderful. I mean, what an accomplishment that your son is knows the word compost over trash. Like, I think that's huge. And I think it's making time for things you care about, you know, and it's not, you know, a spa day or like <laughs> taking a bath. It's like making time for yourself as like individual and the things that are important to you. Um, so I think, I think that's wonderful. And uh, that's really cool. So um, I love it. But okay, I was like, oh, this is going to be Laura. Laurel's like probably taking those notes. <laughs> um, all right. I so am. I am taking notes on that because I was like, oh, you're so efficient and effective. And you're like <laughs> leading and they're watching and they're listening and they're absorbing. I mean, it's monkey see, monkey do. Like we're more kids. We're just like, what are they doing? And then we do that thing. So you're just modeling. And I love it. Thank you for inspiring me. I'm I'm going to be a mom soon. So I'm I'm pumped. Congrats, Laurel. I had no idea. Yeah. Thank you very much. And well, I, I say I'm going to be a mom soon, but it feels like a very long road um, ahead of me. But but anyway, I will talk to you um, offline and pick your brain about mother tips. Thank oh, you. Oh, yes. Absolutely. All right. Well, we'll get up. Thank you so much. I mean, it's been wonderful. We'll get into our wrap up rapid five. And so just, you know, first thing that pops into your head and We'll go through these and then we will uh, we'll close it out. So what is your favorite daily habit? Walking with my dog and my kids. Great. What are three things you'd bring to a deserted island? Okay, this one's tough because I'm vegan. And so all the things that I need, would want are already there. Coconuts, avocados, mangoes, like all of those things are there. So then I would say maybe my husband and my kids and my dog. 
I was thinking that I was like, okay, she has two kids, a husband. I was like, I bet it's us and the dog. Yeah. Um, okay. What is your favorite environmental policy? Ooh. So I don't know if this counts as a policy, but, uh, recently, uh, in Manhattan beach, Bruce's beach was given back to the family. I don't know if y'all know about Bruce. Yeah. Yeah. I read yeah. about this. So it was a black, uh, it was a beach, Manhattan beach. Part of the beach was owned by a black family way back when, and it was taken through eminent domain. Clearly, you know, now we recognize that as an inequity or an injustice, but I feel like it's a, it's a environmental policy, right? Cause I can think I can count it as a policy. LA County board of supervisors wrote it into law, right? And it, so it's environmental and racial. So it's like the combination of diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, and anti-racism all in one. And they just got like they had this big ceremony about it um, recently, I think last week. So that's my my new my favorite right now. Yes, that's a great one. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, what is your favorite flora or fauna? So this changes a lot. And right now it's sunflowers because there are these gorgeous sunflowers that are growing at the community garden. And I never realized that I like sunflowers so much, but I may have to like take a picture and send it to Laurel and, and Jessa and today because we go to the community garden this afternoon and send it to y'all to post with this because they're just they're amazing yes oh my gosh I love that and it's you might like sunflowers right now because it's leo season and sunflowers and the sun and leo they're all together so they're very like empowering at the moment yes I love the leos and and the power and the all the big the grandiose you know what they bring (laughs) all right and then finish this sentence wouldn't it be cool if There was no racism or environmental injustice in the world. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for staying with us a little extra time today. We really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be updated when new episodes are released and leave us a review to let us know what you think. It also really helps us to share the podcast with others who may enjoy learning about the environmental industry. If you want to submit a shout out or any feedback, please send an email or voice memo to podcast at califaep.org. The email again is podcast with an S, podcast at califaep.org.